Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a freer and more prosperous place. Today, we venture into the final frontier, space. But in contrast to James Tiberius Kirk's mission to boldly go where no man has gone before, our guest today has made it his mission to make sending things into space as routine and inexpensive as possible. Uh, Will Duffield and I are joined today by Jim Cantrell, CEO of Vector Launch and a co-founder of SpaceX. Welcome to the show, Jim. Yeah, thank you. Pleased to be here. So to start us off, um, explain for our listeners who've never heard of Vector, what is Vector? What does it do? What's its role in this new micro-satellite industry? Yeah, Vector is a space access company. And by that, we mean we have a two-part business plan. One is to uh, lower the barriers to space access for the hardware itself. And uh, the second part of that is to enable digital access to the hardware once it's up there. So uh, what this means in sort of real terms is that we're building small launch vehicles for the new breed of small satellites that has uh, taken over much like the microcomputers took over from mainframes some 30 years ago and uh, to launch a new economy in space, much like the Internet did 20 years ago. And uh, so the uh, second part of our business plan is we're working on something called Galactic Sky, which is a satellite defined or sorry, a software defined satellite, which will allow users to program uh, uh, satellites uh, with user apps, much in the same way that cell phone networks allow you to program uh, iPhones with uh, specialized user apps. So we think the combination of these two things creates a, uh, a new economy in space, much like elevators allowed a new economy in Manhattan to grow vertically off the island. Uh, same thing will happen in space. So you're the uh, Otis uh, elevator company of space. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. I, I like to think of ourselves as a combination between Apple and Ford. You know, Henry Ford, 100 years ago, came up with the Model T, and it was a pretty radical notion back then that uh, in the world of fanciful, bespoke automobiles that were very expensive and only in the domain of the very wealthy, uh, he had this idea of building uh, cars that could be afforded by the average person. In fact, his very own workers, that would be several hundred dollars. And uh, by mass production, he was able to do this. So we're doing the same thing with rockets. And uh, in the same way that Apple uh, democratized access to uh, uh, high-performance computer capabilities, we'll do the same thing with Galactic Sky for our del- digital delivery portion of it. Now, when we talk about microsatellites, how big of a difference is that from satellites uh, back in the day? Like how much smaller are these satellites? Yeah, that's a good question. I got started in this business more than 30 years ago and the standard satellite was, you know, roughly the size of a uh, Chevrolet Suburban or even a bus. And they were very expensive, uh, running upwards of $500 million, sometimes a billion dollars. And there was only say 20 or 30 of them being produced a year and flown. So it was a mostly government-dominated industry, kind of like the early days of the mainframes were large corporations and uh, universities and governments that owned them. What's happened over the past 30 years is microtechnologies gradually crept into satellites. And uh, you got to realize aerospace, despite its reputation of being the avant-garde of technology, actually is a very late adopter of much of modern technology. So as, as cell phone type miniaturization began to creep into space capabilities, what happened was a revolution in, in satellites that uh, were just beginning to see 
the fruits of. And the satellites today are the size of a loaf of bread, and they weigh you know something like ten pounds, and can be produced for something on the order of twenty thousand dollars to say a million dollars for the most fanciful versions of these. And what this has done is it's created a whole new dynamic. Not only you have this really the same amount of money chasing a larger number of satellites that's dro- driven the number of satellites up, but it allows different risks to be taken because now instead of betting everything on one satellite that has to work, now we have investment communities who are seeing the possibility of taking risk and thus higher returns and innovation that comes with it uh, in the space business by having a lower cost. And what what's missing is the match on the launch side of things. And SpaceX has done a good job you know, providing, uh, in fact, made space safe for investment, I would say. Uh, but they're still aimed at that old market, which is launching very large satellites and humans. So downstream for the consumer, what do these smaller satellites mean? What kind of services will they offer or applications will they host that will impact how we on the ground use technology? So the reality is we really don't know what that is. It's kind of like... Um, the internet in the mid-90s, I was one of the early adopters of, of the internet. We called it NASA Net back then, and uh, DOD had their version. And uh, I looked at it personally and said, you know, apart from porn and self-promotion, I don't know how you'll ever make money on this. So that was <laughs> the first billion-dollar fortune I stepped over. Uh-huh. <laughs> Still some foresight there, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also true that porn and promotion are, are, are what fuels the internet, but I, I think arguably... Once you put the mobile uh, factor into it, we've got innovation that I would have never dreamt of, right, that comes out of your cell phone. So I think the same thing's going to happen in space. So let's back up to where the value chain is right now. It's really in two areas. One is Earth observation. The other is, is communication. So moving bits from point to point and then taking pictures of ourselves. So in the same way, it's kind of like the Internet, right? And the advantage that space has that, that terrestrial doesn't have is two things. One, it's truly global coverage. Number two is it doesn't have the constraints that come with terrestrial coverage uh, of geography, political boundaries, regulatory authority, and so forth. So there, there is a, um, a lot that can be done there with those constraints removed and with the, the ability to see the, the world in a truly global sense. So that's, in essence, what we see on, on Galactic Sky as, as a vision is that we need to open this, this innovation space up to the real innovators in our society who right now are in tech, in software, and focusing on you know, apps like Facebook and Uber and, and so on and so forth, OpenTable, and apply that sort of thinking, that sort of innovation to space. And I think what you'll see is, is a lot of things being done that we've never imagined could be done from space and would probably be based initially on those two areas of Earth observation and, and uh, communication. But, you know, if you look at self-driving cars, for example, that's one area where I personally look at it and say, well, you could, you could pack every car with all the instrumentation to know where every car around it is and to predict where every car around it's going to go, therefore not get in a wreck. Or you could have mass formations of cars that are all communicating with something that then you know, you've offloaded the computation off the cars mm-hmm. and you get basic steering signals back from something that could be in the space layer, for example. And that's a perfect application of that. Our technology is not there today, but that's one where I could see actually enabling 
some of this uh, this congestion, the self-driving car technology that would uh, would be of great value to humanity. You can see uh, even things like identity verification moving that way. Instead of filling out the CAPTCHA to prove you aren't a robot, you step outside and wave to the satellite. Uh, well, there you go. That's another another idea I never thought about. You're making my point. And you know something interesting that I ran across. Uh, you know, I, I delve into cryptocurrency a bit. Uh, my son is uh, Colin is an innovator on that uh, space with Nexus. He was the inventor of that, and he's opened my eyes to that. But one of the things that I I found in in looking into that space was in parts of Africa, they use uh, cell phone minutes as a fungible currency, and they can text these things back and forth between their cell phones. So so you've got parts of the world where seemingly capitalism and commerce and, and uh, freedom of both expression and, and economics really aren't found that this kind of capability can enable. You know, just a geographic reach of being in space is a game changer. You know, you have, you have communities of uh, countries like China and some of, some of their allies where free speech is, is really not desired in the society, yet uh, the individuals uh, yearn for that. This is a way to step around that. You know, the Great Firewall of China, too bad. You know, you can step around it. So there's, there's a lot of things here uh, that are that are humongous benefit to humanity that if you just give people, smart people, innovative people, the tools, they'll do it. And that's, that's sort of the essence of my personal philosophy is, you know, enable the smart people to make a difference and they will. Yeah. No, that's that's actually impressive, impressive and compelling vision. I'm, I'm also reminded of um, the unintended consequences during the Clinton administration of opening up the global positioning system to private entrepreneurship. Uh, and no one would have anticipated the applications, the consumer applications of that technology at the time. It was an unknown. And so much of our digital infrastructure depended on that decision of the government freeing up or giving private access to that system. Um, and so, I mean, I, I find it compelling your vision uh, for what what kind of private action in, in space can do. I, I have developed a relationship with the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, who's a very smart guy, by the way. And he last week I had a private meeting with him and he asked the question, you know, what can the government do to enable this new uh, digital space economy? And more importantly, what should it not do to kill it? And we, you know, I use this example of GPS, uh, and I'm old enough to remember this. The Soviets in, in that era of, you know, we thought every day was the last day on Earth, potentially. Uh, the Soviets shot down a Korean airliner that is straight out of uh, its intended path and over uh, Kamchatka airspace. And they sent a, a MIG up and shot it down full of, you know, 400 passengers, including several U.S. congressmen. And uh, that literally nearly ignited a war. So, the decision was made to use this GPS infrastructure, which was originally Navstar, started under the Carter administration to allow ships, Navy ships at sea, to, to better navigate uh, under uh, cloudy conditions and so on. And as this, as this evolved, it became a weapons targeting system. But what we really found was it became a, a, a really necessary infrastructure for navigation worldwide. And as you point out, you know, we did not see the consequences of being able to call up an Uber, <laughs> a personal car that somebody's acting as a taxi driver to show up where you're standing, pick you up and take you to where you go. 
and and all of those things you know the first gps boxes were gigantic things that would barely fit on my desk and now i've got one in every telephone i have and lord knows i probably have it in other things i didn't know i had it in and uh what what a difference that's made and that that is really the the partnership that i think the government and private enterprise needs to needs to have it's like roads if we didn't have roads this economy would suck i spent a lot of time in the former soviet union and that's the one thing I realized about that 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 com- country was they had no infrastructure to move their products from point A to point B, and there were there were literally no roads in the country, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But you know there there is a proper role for the government in all of this, and and uh, in in our future it ends up probably being helping with space traffic control, and not not being the traffic cop, you know, not being like we're going to go have wars all over the world to bring peace and democracy, but rather providing an infrastructure like GPS that says, hey, look, you know, this is something of value to everybody and not just U.S. citizens, but everybody in the world. Has there been tension? I mean, you represent a new wave of private space innovation, um, you know, investment in space by the private sector. And you're, you know, you're talking about your relationship with, you know, Wilbur Ross. I know you've, you've been in D.C. recently to do some uh, talking about like things like space debris and the like. Um is that relationship warm with NASA as well, or do they see this as you and other, you know, commercialized uh, space ventures like stepping on their territory? How, what, what's that relationship been like for you guys? Well, that's a fascinating question, and I think the answer is even more fascinating. So, you know, the government's not a single monolithic face, as you probably well know, and our relationship with the Defense Department, um, which I have my differences with. Okay, I'm I'm very much a patriot, but. Uh, some things I'm just not on board with that they're doing, particularly the intelligence agencies. And don't get me started on the FBI. But, um, you know, we find a middle ground there because we're producing a commercial product. And it, in fact, is much more efficiently done with private capital than it would be with public capital in the public system. Because as I point out to people, and they don't like to hear this, that the Defense Department really runs on a Soviet economic system. They have a five-year plan. They de- determine what the products are, how they're developed, the timeline they're developed on, and then they get to pick the winners and the losers. And uh, if that's not the Soviet economic system that we all fought, uh, many of us uh, nearly to death uh, to defeat, I don't know what is. So that's the great irony. Now, if you go over to NASA, it's a different deal. And um, I'm personal friends with the NASA administrator, Jim Bridenstine. He's a good guy, former congressman, a big fan of commercial. Uh, but on the other hand, NASA, I view... And, and I've worked with these guys for many years, so I, I love NASA. For anybody in the audience that's from NASA, I love you guys. Uh, but what you know I'm going to say is the truth. NASA has primarily become a jobs program, not a technology shop. And when you look at Space Launch System, which is referred to in some circles as the rocket to nowhere, uh, that is all about jobs in Alabama. And I'm sorry that that upsets people, but that's the truth. And you and I get our, our pockets rated to pay for that. So there are a lot of good people at NASA. There's a lot of people there that um, don't necessarily like that this is what NASA's become. And there's a lot of good technology that comes out of NASA. Arguably, solar system exploration is NASA's crown jewel. And that's where I spent most of my time with NASA is helping either on source selection and so on. So what we see is sort of a multi-face out of NASA response to what Vector's doing in some corners, you see them feeling threatened that, yes, we are stepping on their toes. 
that we're doing something that we trivialize as kind of the implication of their criticisms. You know, yes, building rockets is very hard. I will tell you, it's very, very hard. But it isn't the only, no, the government's not the only people that can do this. There's nothing about being a government that says, government, you have to work for a government to build a rocket. That's nonsense. I mean, SpaceX proved that otherwise. In the early days of SpaceX, we had a really uh, uh, psychopathic response of hate and love by NASA to SpaceX. And uh, there were many people that, you know, Elon was not a popular guy in the early days. I will tell you that. And uh, even with the Defense Department, he wasn't. He was seen as, as almost a lunatic in some cases. Highly criticized. I had people tell me, you know, how can you even be around a guy so dishonest? Because they thought the basic proposition that he could be successful was dishonest. I never saw it that way. Uh, but a lot of those people do. So we still have those pockets there. Um, if you read the, I call them the internet trolls out there, and they, there's whole pages on me and how dishonest I am. And I'm, I'm, it's shades of what they said about Elon. I choose to ignore that. I choose to focus on being successful. And uh, usually the people that make these criticisms are the ones that go home on a Friday, pop a beer and sit in their armchair and uh, complain about the world while watching CNN or Fox News or whatever it is their favorite news show is. Uh, I challenge them to actually do something, right? So we are the world of doers. And uh, I'm back in this game because I have an opportunity to do something that'll make a difference. And um, I'm really sorry if people don't uh, don't think that we can make it happen. I'm going to show you otherwise. As I've said before, I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to watch me. So it, it feels at times that if it, with the way tech industry coverage works, if Elon Musk burps, a dozen tech journalists write long-form think pieces about how that gaseous emission is going to save the world. So he attracts a lot of attention <laughs> from the press, right? Does that ever get Yo. frustrating as the CEO of a competing satellite startup that you fly under the radar compared to him in SpaceX? Oh, not at all. No, I listen, let's set the record on straight on Elon Musk and myself. I, I greatly admire the man. Uh, I think he's accomplished great things. Uh, I wasn't a believer in his vision. I was wrong about him. Um, I see, <laughs> every day goes by, I understand him a lot better. And if Elon, if you're listening, I, I get a lot of the things you told me years ago that I didn't get then. But uh, no, you know, SpaceX in particular is thousands of people, and it's not just Elon. You know, um, Gwen Shotwell took over from me, and she was a dear friend from the industry that that took over, and now she runs SpaceX. And so the pair of them have done dynamite stuff and SpaceX, you know, some of the stuff they have done, you know, when they launched their first heavy literally brought tears to my eyes. I'm a grown man in my fifties and I'm sitting there weeping, watching this thing. You know, I had a very small part in that, in that, that uh, magnificent achievement many years ago. Right. And even if it was that minuscule, I still feel a pride of at least some intellectual ownership in some of this stuff. So, so no, I, I think Elon has earned uh, a reputation, and I mean that word earned, uh, as an innovator. And he is. He, the, the man does not, uh, he does not understand it, it's not going to work or it's going to fail. He just doesn't accept that. He doesn't even conceive of it. And uh, that's something, if you go out and you do, you know, there are some hard days, and there are some really hard days. And you have to dust yourself off and get up again and go do it. You know, we, we had a tough week last week, and, uh, you know, as I was explaining to the guys, this is like racing a car, and we went off in the corner, and we smashed into the tire wall. Well, we'll bring it back in, we'll knock the fenders out, put a new wheel on it, and, you know, we get a new driver, and we'll take it through the rest of the night, but we'll get there, we'll finish the race. 
And and that's the kind of dogged determination Elon showed. And, you know, if if I have any uh any shadow of him that rubs off on me, I'm grateful for it. So so I don't have harbor any resentment or anything like that towards the man. Just just pure admiration. Now you mentioned a tough week, Jim. Did this, was there a, a launch issue? What 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 happened for Vector that made made last week tough? No, it's just you know we're always trying to figure out um, what we're good at in the company as individuals and where we need to be. So you know we're we're, we're at a time where we have to make this product work. And we're under a lot of time pressure and financial pressure to make it do that. And we'll get there. But uh, no, we've had to make a lot of hard choices last week. And we made them. And I think it's for the better of the company. And you have to elevate yourself above as a CEO, as any principal in a company, even as an employee. You have to elevate yourself above your own emotions, your own sort of self-interest, and do what's in the best interest of the company. And I, I don't mean that in sort of an Orwellian sense, but you know, look, this company's made of, we have 160 individuals. There's a whole group of families that are associated with that. So you're affecting, you know, potentially 500, 600 people here. And then, you know, we've had $100 million of investor money that's come in. Some of it from in the early days from people writing $25,000 checks. I never forget any of those people, either the employees or the investors. So, so that's, you know, that's the thing we're always facing. And not everybody, you know, remembers those things. And sometimes our egos get in the way. But we'll get through it. And we're whole and we're good. And, uh, you know, when, when we're dealing with purely technical stuff, it's a whole lot easier than dealing with the human side of the problem. In running this business and trying to keep everything moving, but also being reliant upon uh, the government for permission to launch. Um, how did the, the recent shutdown affect you guys? Yeah, that, that's part of what we're dealing with is it really came at the least opportune time um, because we were in the middle of a uh, licensing process. And, uh, you know, when the government shut down for what was it, I, I lost track, four weeks, five weeks, something like that, um, you know, essentially take double or triple the time impact on you. Uh, because of the time to get back up and, you know, things move and, you know, you planned your future around this, this ability to have a regulatory pass here. And I'm, trust me, my friends at the FAA are doing a great job. I'm not, if you're listening, I'm not complaining, but, you know, the government shut down. I, yes, I did complain about that. I mean, our government's got to get its act together and quit this crap. If you're going to have a regulatory authority, then then you need to be responsible with it. So it's had its very, very definite impacts. We've had to delay launches because of it. And uh, that has, you know, both uh, morale and uh, material impacts on our operation. And we combine that with, uh, you know, some of our federally mandated safety systems. Those vendors also were uh, late in delivering. And so this moved us into a uh, time when the range was no longer available again because of the federal government. So I feel like, uh, you know, that the federal government has not been on our lucky side this, this past six months. But we'll get through it. We redeveloped a plan. Uh, you know, it's one of the things about being a small company is you're agile. So we, we developed a plan around this and uh, we're moving forward with our first launch in, uh, in May timeframe, May, June timeframe, and then our orbital launch in the August, September timeframe. So all is sticking together so far, but in the rocket business, things happen. And, uh, you know, I can't predict, uh, whether or not we'll have another government shutdown or parts delayed or, you know, but that, that's the plan and we're, we're, by God, we're going to stick to it. 
yeah, these things aren't, aren't costless. It's a good reminder of that, that there's a cost to even innovation from, from that. Um, something, Jim, that, that came to mind when we here at Building Tomorrow talk to folks with expertise in like regulatory policy, like we had someone come on to talk about um, they were advocating for the FAA to auction off uh, airspace for uh, for drones and that kind of thing. Um, so with space, we have um, something of a like a Garrett Hardin-esque tragedy of the commons. Like no – there is no clear property – in space, it's a kind of a global commons. Uh, it's regulated by international treaty. Um, do you see that as being an issue going forward? As the quantity of things being sent up uh, around the globe from lots of different nations being sent into space, um, as that increases, I mean, there's an increased risk of infringement on other devices, whether it's you know collisions with space debris or uh, who's responsible to clean that up. Do do you see a need for some kind of uh, leasing or property right in space to encourage private innovation? Do you, what role do you see for the FAA or uh, other regulators of space in making sure that the regulatory scheme both encourages investment um, and also you know protects uh, national interests in space? Right. So the great question. Um, you know, be, because I'm a libertarian, I am not anti-government, I'm pro-smart government, minimal government, and uh, there is clearly needs for regulatory regimes in cases where public safety or, in this case, uh, sort of the the common good or common use of space uh, comes about. So this is kind of a complicated problem. This was, in fact, what we were talking about with the Commerce Secretary last week, was what, what should the Commerce Department do or not do here? The bottom line was that um, to treat this a little bit like the high seas. So by treaty, outer space is, is, has no national sovereignty, sovereignty past 100 kilometers, or that makes about 62 miles. That thrills the cryptocurrency people, by the way, because they imagine their, their tokens up in space where nobody can get at them. Um, <laughs> it's sort of an aside, but uh, the reality is it's true. It's, you know, it's like uh, you know, some of these, uh, if you go back to the, uh, uh, the era when uh, alcohol was, was not legal in the United States, people would take ships off the, off the coast of California, they go out and drink and gamble and have fun, and they come back in and get arrested by the, by the uh, do-gooders that would think this is a bad thing. So, so in, in that same sense, high seas it really serves as the model for what we do in, in, uh, in space traffic control. And the suggestion that, that we are forwarding in this industry, and I think we're all of the same mind, is if you're going to pass a regulation, make a requirement for U.S. origin satellites to ensure no-fault insurance for third-party liability in the case of, uh, of, of, a, of a collision in space. And so <clears throat> what, what essentially this does is it becomes a smart regulation in the sense that now you have people who are trying to make money on this. And yes, it's an extra burden of cost to the satellite operators. And you have to, as an operator, you have to get comfortable with the idea that, you know, one of the byproducts of a growing robust economy in space is going to be extra cost due to regulatory influences. So you can't get around that in my mind. Uh, but, you know, by, by the fact the insurance people have smart uh, risk uh, analysts that are going to look at this, they're going to price the risk into your destination. So one of the big complaints, for example, we have about about uh, launching 100 satellites on a big Falcon 9, for example, 
again, no, nothing against my friends at SpaceX, but when you do that, uh, they call that a launch of a lot of satellites. Uh, the Air Force calls that space debris because they can't tell the difference between all of these loaf of bread sized satellites as they come off, particularly in mass. And the last one they did in, I think it was December out of Vandenberg, uh, there was about 20 some of those satellites that, that I think to this day have not been talked to because they can't identify which one's which. And uh, so, so that's in an orbit uh, that is highly populated. It's in an orbit where a lot of very high dollar satellites want to go. It's not necessarily where all the small ones want to go, but that was where the bus was going. So you went. And uh, so, so that would be the sort of thing where insurance would price the risk into that. And, you know, if you really need to be there, then that's part of your business plan, right? And, and it reduces sort of the, uh, the JAFOs, the observers that go along for the, for the ride. And uh, they would necessarily want to go to a different orbit. For most of them, they would prefer to say go not to 800 kilometers where these guys went, but down to, to maybe 450 kilometers. Now, the difference is for, for, the, for the layman, you probably don't realize the atmosphere extends even up to 800 kilometers. So there's a, such thing as an orbital lifetime at that altitude that's going to last 100 years, 200 years, something like that, depending on the size of the satellite. If you get down to 400 kilometers, it's going to last months, maybe a year. If you're 450, maybe it's a couple of years. So, so this is where Vector, I think, also becomes part of the, the solution. And this is why we believe in our business model, partly, is, is that we think that most satellites want to actually be at the lower altitudes because the physics all work out better. And they're in a, in a model where, since the lower cost of satellites there, you can replace the satellites more often. So, like, you know, I own Macs, and I'd only replace them three or four years between models. And they're fairly expensive. My kids own PCs, and they're buying a new PC every six months because they're like $400. So, so it's the same sort of phenomenon here. So, so we think that by pricing in this risk, th this will naturally make the marketplace uh, uh, more, more natural in terms of market economics. And it kind of solves the space debris problem or mitigates it since the things are burning up every couple of months. So it mitigates it. And yeah. then you also allow, if you're pricing risk and people want to avoid that risk, you either don't go there or you come up with technical ways of avoiding it. And again, the government infrastructure is what? They have, since they're looking for errant nuclear weapons heading towards the United States, which I'm all for them doing, um, then you know they're also, also looking at stuff in space. And if that, if that cataloging, sort of the inverse of the GPS, uh, is made available to everybody, which it is on a, on a low accuracy, unclassified level, uh, then that's a great public service. That's a great worldwide service and, you know, maintains U.S. leadership in, in all these sort of things by U.S. government doing it. I'm a big fan of the government doing this, the, the so-called space fence. So talking uh, worldwide, <clears throat> what do you see other states doing in this space, both with regard to domestic regulation of their space industries, but also how they approach these sorts of collective action problems in orbit? Well, it's interesting. Um, so I think the U.S. is, again, the leader in all of this. You know, it, it's pretty clearly we're the leader in space right now. It's the one thing in our economy that we do better than anybody in the world. You know, you can criticize what NASA does. That's not necessarily what we're doing commercially. Uh, but if you look at, you know, how much money is being invested, how much, uh, how many satellites are being flown, where all the innovative rockets are coming, it's clearly the U.S. and uh, led by SpaceX on the rocket side. We hope to be right behind them. 
So, so if you look at some of the other countries, Europe in particular, scrambling to catch up, they don't have a robust um, uh, uh, investment infrastructure like we have in Silicon Valley, which you know came out of the internet. And what was that invested in? ARPA, right? So, so you can see where some of these early government things have led to breakthrough technologies, have led to ecosystems in the capitalist world that have uh, really helped us to to stay advanced. So the Europeans are, are, you know, they know they want to be players in here. They they want to have regulatory say so, um, but they're just not there yet. And uh, then you get to states like China and Russia. And Russia, the system's really collapsing. I mean, I spent uh, a number of years there. I speak Russian. I know the Russians. Um, I was, uh, shall we just say, a consultant to the Defense Department, you know, trying to got brain drain during the 90s. And, uh, you know, the, the, their infrastructure is, is is decaying and their their commercial launch uh, capabilities are all but gone. Uh, mostly self-inflicted wounds, I would say. Terribly capable people, terribly capable companies, but, you know, within a system that I would say is still very much uh, uh, oligarch, although it's different oligarchs than there were 15 years ago. And then you go to China, which is, again, <laughs> mirrors our, our own sort of defense uh, idea and they, and they they have commercial capabilities, but they're uh, really um, they're really state funded commercial capabilities. So they're kind of like Sweden's model in a way. Sweden's actually not socialist in my mind. I know that's a controversial statement because common wisdom says that that uh, they are socialist. But you know, for example, their Swedish space corporation is their NASA, and that's a private corporation that's owned by the government. Um, and really, an interesting, unique model. And they just have a philosophy that this is something that they want the government to have ultimate control over, but to let market economics actually make the best use of their very limited funds. And, and it works very well. And we've, you know, we like those guys and talk to them. China has done somewhat of the same thing, you know, and they pick and choose the winners of who's going to do these by, uh, you know, some some other political sort of uh, selection process. So we find them really being one of our potentially our bigger competitors, but their their business practices as well as uh, sort of the, the infrastructure within the country really limits that. I, and I think America can be very competitive against these sort of things if we continue to take the lead. And, and I intend to be the tip of that spear, frankly. Now, Jim, you spent some time, uh, from what I understand, working both for the U.S. Department of Defense. You've You've done some work with with the Russians in the '90s, as you mentioned. Um, he, here at Cato, we're you know very broadly uh, kind of skeptical of war, generally anti-war, and this leads us to a question for you about the proposed space force that that Trump just signed in the executive order to plan for the creation of this new branch of the military. So, so as someone who has both like Defense Department experience, space investment experience. Uh, in multiple countries, like what are your, do you have any concerns or reservations about this shift towards militarization in space? Um, or do you see it as, uh, you know, a needed and necessary push? You know, I am late in my life. I was uh, early on a fire breathing Republican, you know, Reagan voting Republican. And uh, I won't say I was pro-war, but I was a lot more tolerant of the idea. I've since seen the human cost, you know, with my, my son's friends and, you know, it's, it's terrible. And a war in space is much the same thing. Uh, it, it's something that nobody benefits from, much like a nuclear war that, you know, even if there's a few exchanges, I was just reading about Chernobyl 
And I remember when that happened in 86 and, you know, the, I remember the radiation clouds going around. I mean, that accident affected everybody on earth, some more than others and space warfare would be the same. And uh, so what we have to do is everything we can to prevent that from happening. So you have to stand back and ask yourself, why would somebody want to blow somebody else, else's stuff up in space? You know, apart from being a, you know, an ex-spouse or something like that, you know, this is, this is a strategic nation state kind of thing. It's not the War of the Roses. And so, you know, it's, it comes down to the asymmetric advantage that space capabilities give a warfighting uh, nation. So if you look at Saddam Hussein and the first Gulf War, he because he had no space imagery capability, and trust me, he tried to buy it from Spotty Maj in Toulouse, where I was living at the time. Um, the, he, he had no idea that Schwarzkopf was uh, amassing troops where they were. He thought they were coming in from Kuwait. And so just a simple imagery capability lost the war for Saddam. And so people that are professional military folks understand this, and it's a very sophisticated capability we have today compared to you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. But uh, you know, it's, it's increasingly sophisticated. So what, what's ironic is this commercial, you know, the sort of things I'm talking about, becomes a bigger and bigger part of the Pentagon's acquisition strategy and reliance on commercial communications, those commercial assets are now seen as legitimate targets of war. So if just to pick a country, if China decided to invade Taiwan, one of the things they clearly would do would be to threaten the U.S. space assets, not to actually hit them, but to say, look, you know, either you're going to stand back and let Taiwan go down or we're going to take out you know, several billion dollars of your space assets, and you won't be able to stop us once we've done that. So that's uh, that's a sort of Damocles, if you will, over everybody's head. So what we really look for, and this is really consistent, I think, with the Pentagon's planning, is is a defensive space posture, which takes away the incentive for people to uh, destroy space assets, whether commercial or defense, around the world. And and the the way you do that is what's what's been known as responsive space. And believe it or not, I've been involved in this discussion for 30 plus years. Uh, we used to call them pop-up sets, you know, things you could put up rapidly to replace things that were taken away. This changes the calculus, if this capability exists, of an adversary and looking at, you know, gee, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take out uh, a U.S. Uh, satellite. And we know that they've got a response for this. But if it's, uh, you know, if it's severe enough, that, that benefit better be very high of taking out somebody else's satellite. So what you want is a responsive launch capability. And guess what? Vector actually is that. We're embodying what the U.S. government has been trying to do for 20 years at least and spend a little over a billion dollars doing uh, having a, a rapidly launched mass-produced uh, launcher. Somebody behind us has to do the same thing with the satellites and uh, you know some civil air reserve kind of policy we think we can help stop a war in space. So jumping over to politics, um, which is a whole other world filled with scoundrels and, and creatures and things that I don't like to talk about, like cockroaches. Um, you know, we've got a president who I think is trying to do the right thing, uh, who at times is uh, inarticulate in how he says things. Uh, but, you know, when he said Space Force, it sounded kooky as hell. I'll be honest, I was against it in the way he was promoting it. And, you know, I said so. I said so on Fox News. I've said so in any place that's asked me. Jesse Ventura loves it when I say it. 
Um, and uh, I love Jesse, by the way. He's a he's a real character and a you know and a, and a real hero for standing up for his uh, First Amendment rights, which I'm all for. So, so you know, Space Force sends the wrong message. Number one, number two, it creates a new branch of the military, which we don't need to spend that money on. Number three, it's really already being done. And uh, so, where they ended up with is creating a space recreating space command which was sunk i don't know under the obama years i missed that one i must have been sleeping or out racing cars but um they reconstitute space command which is in the case of war and our assets get attacked now we have a command structure to deal with it the first thing you can have is like 9-11 well who's on who's on first who's on second so that's been reestablished. smart okay that doesn't cost us anything it's smart second thing is that the air force has already really been the lead on this so putting a, a specific capability in the Air Force, I'm agnostic about that. It, 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 I'm sure Lockheed and Boeing and, and Northrop, and I love you guys, but you love to spend money. I'm sure the lobbyists had something to do with this. But on the other hand, um, fine. That's a nice, happy medium ground. So I, I call this uh, Trump's obvious first encounter with the military industrial complex and all its lobbyists. I guess I, I also see tremendous value in simply creating a space for people to begin to think about these sorts of problems because if uh, conflict in space is thrust upon us at some point in the future, uh, one imagines we won't have much time to think about how it may play out, what the downstream effects and uh, effectively uh, – g- games being played there um, between actors will be. Um, but if you have folks who've been able to consider these possibilities for years beforehand. So, so that's certainly a benefit in the public's eye, right? And I will tell you that we've been thinking about this for a long time and it's just not been on the unclassified level. And, uh, you know, for many years I worked on things I could talk about, some of which had something to do with this. Um, I've been in war games, you know, Shriver war games happen every year. Uh, or is it every two years? I don't remember. I was in one of them early on where space warfare was a big part of it. That was a long time ago, right? So so I think the policy people and the, and the military professionals have always done their job in this respect. The public is very slowly becoming aware of this. I remember it was January 11th, 2007. Uh, I was living in Key West at the time. But I was still briefed into some stuff. And uh, we knew that the Chinese had tried to blow up their own satellite, uh, you know, as a test of their ASAT system. And they'd missed. They'd missed a number of times. And then uh, uh, then they hit on, on January 11th. They, boom, they blew it up. And, and they created a big cloud of debris. And it went everywhere. And it was in one of those really bad orbits to do this. And uh, I couldn't talk about it. And then one day I got a call from one of my friends at Space News. said, hey, we're hearing about the Chinese that blew up a satellite. And I didn't know what, what to say. You know, I, I denied it. You know, what are you going to do? You can't divulge classified information. And then it looked like the uh, Bush administration decided to leak this out. That's what I finally concluded, and it became unclassified. That Yes, the Chinese did test a, a, an ASAT. And I, so I think a certain amount of, um, shall we say, just shining the light on, on these facts, much like we should be doing with the FBI, who's a criminal organization, if you ask me, uh, we should be shining the light on all of this sort of corruption and, and what, what, what the international community you know, some of these countries actually have is, is war plans because it's it's counter to us as humans to do this. And I think I think the U.S. government's right to bring a spotlight on this. 
Do you ever see any potential for non-state actor abuse of this space, particularly as the costs of launching anything up there fall? Absolutely. Yeah. So so kinetic kind of involvement, I think, is probably beyond most of their capabilities, at least you know, we detect it. <laughs> so we, we've actually leave a pretty big footprint on what we're doing. You know, you can't just test rocket engines in the desert and not get detected. So, uh, it, you know, what, what you worry about is the cyber side of this. And I think, I think that's the real danger that, that nobody's really faced. So I think what you'll see is, you know, we've actually and some others are solving the kinetic side of the problem, but what we won't solve is the cyber side of the problem. So any of you innovators out there that are looking for the next business to get into, take your cybersecurity and apply it to satellites. That That's where it's all at. You're also involved in the Humans to Mars Summit. Uh, you've promoted efforts to send probes to Pluto. Um, it, it does feel like a lot of vector-specific application, and, and here it makes sense as a private sector investment opportunity. You can imagine the profits of you know near-Earth orbit sat- commercial applications of satellites. With these like Mars and Pluto type missions, is there a hard head use case for those efforts? Um, if not, like how, how do you convince investors to pour millions into those kinds of operations? Uh, and if that's hard to do, is that where the state in space is still needed? You need state efforts to, you know, since there are no profits for these broader, or at least not short term profits for these farther space missions. Um, so maybe you can wed like so vectors of. It is a profit-seeking, uh, you know, use of, of capitalist innovation. How do you take pivot from that to things that are not kind of profit-based ventures? Well, it, it's a very interesting question you you pose. And in, in, in terms of my history, you know, I was on the, the t- first team on the Pluto Fast flyby. I, later on, my good friend Alan Stern, who's the PI, you know, got it to work and went by and so on. But I was... I was just almost out of graduate school when I first worked on that. That's how long these things take, right? And uh, then I got involved. My my time in France was actually through the Planetary Society. And while we had some money from the French Space Agency, this was funded by the Planetary Society member donations. So these were people who just wanted to see things happen and were, you know, able to put together enough $25 checks, $100 checks, and a few big donors that, uh, you know, we were able to fund a human... Or, sorry, a public uh, involvement in deep space, which, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, which is when this was, was, was unheard of, right? And that's how much people believe in space exploration as a species. So that, you know, and then later on, you know, we, we raised some money from uh, both uh, private donors and uh, from, from the Arts and Entertainment Network to build a couple of solar sails. Uh, one was Cosmos One, which we launched out of a Russian submarine in 1999. And uh, that was another experience. And then LightSail, which was kind of my brainchild. And no, Bill Nye did not invent uh, solar sailing, even though he thinks he did. Um, you know, the second one has yet to fly. Um, so, so that was my brainchild. I was program manager on. That was all done with private money. So what you find is there's two kinds of investment mentalities there. I wouldn't even call a second an investment. You know, you've got venture capitalists. You've got, you know, investment banks. You've got... Uh, you know, uh, uh, growth funds, all that sort of stuff. They're there to make money. You know, I have my money in those funds. I expect them to grow. Uh, then once you make enough money, you kind of, you get a whole other scale of things. I, some call it the billionaire's boys club. And, you know, that's where Elon and Jeff Bezos kind of fell in a certain extent, Richard Branson. Now they're 
all doing, you know, money chasing, profit making kinds of activities. But then, then you see a lot of others, and I'm not going to name names because they tend to prefer to remain private, but they want to see good things happen in space. And for whatever reason, they, they believe in putting their money into it. I myself have told my children, and I have, I have six of them, you know, two adopted from my second marriage and four from my first. And I told them, look, don't count on having my money because uh, I want you to make it your own. And, and a lot of people with money feel the same way. And so they, they, they want to put this money into good. And you see them doing philanthropic kinds of things. So, you know, Humans to Mars was one of those those kind of things. And it's still a, it's still a dream. And I think I'm going to predict that Elon will be one of the first people on Mars. And uh, it was obvious from the day that he, he came out of the woodwork at me that that's what his idea was. And I think, I think his entire plan still remains that. And my apologies to Elon if you're there. And this really isn't true, but I think it is. Um, but, uh, you know, everything I see them doing is consistent with that. And that's also guided our business plan because, you know, that means certain things about what the launch industry is left behind. So, so I think that in the same way the government can be philanthropic, but in a capitalistic sense, I see the government investment in things like the Internet. And, you know, some of the early rocket stuff was purely defense. But, you know, some of this, some of this uh, technology that going to Mars and all these places, it has real economic payoffs. Because we, you know, it was a training ground for all of us in Vector, for one, you know, and we owe a debt of gratitude at the very least to NASA, to all the defense guys who spent their good-earned money on on me and my crackpot ideas through the years. So, so there's at least that. And, and so I do see government, if it's done right, not a jobs program, not a political pork belly crap thing that's going on from all the swamp creatures in D.C., uh, but if it's, if it's truly something driven – that that perhaps it, it becomes an economic benefit. You can't even quantify the benefit of the internet to the world that was pioneered by by DARPA. So so yeah, I'm 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 a big fan of this, and I think you know at the end of the day we have to ask ourselves why we're even here. You know why why was I born? Why why am I living? And you know it our species is here to propagate, and our species is here to propagate off the face of the earth. That's even that's what Elon said the first time I talked to him. You know, uses this this line, multiplanetary species. That's his original, and uh, it's, he's right. You know, and it's something I choose not to work on today, but I'm very much behind the notion of it. And there's a lot of people who won't put their money there, and and that's great. Well, Jim, you know, I I think we're running tight on time here, but we could talk for another hour about these topics. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on, and for our listeners. Until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.